that you're a healer, and we're just believing this right now as we stand. And, and together we believe in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Great lesson today. Start off, ask a couple questions. Why do we why do we use a mirror? See our reflection. See things that we couldn't normally see. Um, using a mirror on a car, we we can see what's behind us as we look forward. Um, so uh, we use a mirror to see a reflection and to see things that we wouldn't normally see. Now the next question. This one could have some debate as the answer. How clear do we want the mirror to be? I guess it depends on what you're looking at. As we get a little older, we probably don't want that mirror to be as clear as it was at one time. But if we're backing up, let's say we're, you're in a big truck. Anybody ever backed up a truck where you had to use just the mirrors or back up a car where you had to use just mirrors, you couldn't look over your shoulder? In that situation, you want that mirror to be just as clear as it can possibly be so you don't miss something. And today our lesson is about the right reflection. I'm going to ask Sister Joan to read the story at the beginning. Test. Pardon. Reflection. We really know the impact that our lives may be having upon those who watch us from afar. Such was the case for Connie Noland. Her place was on the assembly line, had most of the most demanding work in the entire Elm Street plant. Connie's reputation for being a woman of moral integrity was a constant threat to the women who worked, she worked with since they made a regular practice of stealing from the company. They wished her gone, and too often she always wished she could leave. Connie went to her pastor one day and asked if he would pray that God would help her find a new job. The pastor then told her the story that Nak Beta shared with him the week before. Mike came to the church and told his story. I want you to pray for me for my wife's salvation. I believe she is getting close. For years she has worked down on the Elm Street plant, and there was a woman down there that works with her, Connie. The women all dislike her and treat her badly. Connie, Connie, Connie takes their intentional abuse and appear bitter. In fact, she treats them all with respect and love. Pastor, this is having a deep impact upon my wife, and I want you to pray with me, at me that this impact upon my wife, and I want to pray that with me, sorry, that this Connie person will somehow be I give up. When Pastor Yardley shared these words with Connie, she knew that she must stay put. She also knew she had a new reason for her perseverance. Amazing how things work out sometimes. There are times, I think, with all of us that we don't realize that someone is watching us. And we think, well, it doesn't really make any difference because there's just, you know, nobody pays any attention to what I do. But in this story and so many times in, in real life, we find that the person that we really didn't think was watching us was watching the whole time. 
And they were, they were looking at what we were and what our God was based on what they saw in us. Now, you don't have to raise your hand and answer this out loud, but my actions and attitudes always reflect God's character to those around me. I think that would probably be the most proper answer, I wish. Because as much as we like to think, there are probably times when it just doesn't come out exactly like it's supposed to. I have particular times when my reflection of God to others is especially not what it should be. I think if we answer honestly, we would have to say that's true also. Now, that doesn't make us like totally backslidden or, or whatever. I think it just makes us need where we need to take a look at what is standing in the way of us being the right reflection. Maybe our mirror needs to be cleaned. Our lesson today starts off in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. We're picking up where we left off last week. This is still part of the Sermon on the Mount. Last week was basically the Beatitudes part, and this is a continuation this week. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, here's, here's the, the setting for this. Jesus' opposition <clears throat> were accusing him of trying to set aside the teaching of the Old Testament and the teaching of the Hebrew Scripture that they had in that, at that time. And Jesus was just telling them flat out, I'm not here to take it away, I'm here to fulfill it. It's not that I'm trying to destroy it and wipe it out. I'm here to go one step further. <clears throat> and when Jesus said, the, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets, you have to realize that in a lot of times in, in that day, speaking of the Old Testament, which wasn't known as the Old Testament at that point, it was the only testament they had, but it was, it was spoken of a lot of times the law and the prophets because there was a portion of what they had as far as Scripture was considered the law, and then he had all the prophecy. So he wasn't talking about a person when he said the prophets. He was talking about the Scripture that they had at that time, the law and the prophets of that day. I didn't come to, to wipe that out. I came to fulfill it. Now, <clears throat> when he said I came to fulfill it, he said I come to fulfill it down to the last jot or tittle. If you look at... Let's look at the King James Version. One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. Did a little bit of research this week, and for all the bad things that there is about the Internet, there are some really cool things. A tittle is a distinguishing mark. It's called a, a diacritic. This is what we would recognize it as. Not that. That. The dot over an I. The dot over a J. That would be 
what was referred to as a tittle. It's thought that the phrase to a T is comes from this word, and that's what it's referring to. We, you know, he did that just, it was perfect right to a T. Right to the very dot over the I or the dot over the J. It was perfect. And we get the, the, the saying that we use now, dot your I's and cross your T's. That's where that comes from. Now, a jot comes from this. Iota. What that is, is the ninth letter of the Greek alphabet. Iota is the pronunciation of the ninth letter of the Greek alphabet. There's actually other pronunciations, but I'm going to use that one because that's the one I've always heard. The, the letter Iota, which was designated by that, actually, it was more like that. What that was, it was the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. And so what Jesus was saying, this will not be passed away until every dot over every I or every tiny letter of the alphabet has been fulfilled. We have transferred the name of this letter into our language today by meaning um, it's used in the English as uh, something that's very, very small. Um, for example, there's not one iota of evidence that that's true. And we, that's a common word that we, that we use, and it signifies a meaningless distinction. So with that in mind of jots and tittles, let's read that um, scripture again. Let's read it in NIV. <clears throat> I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Makes more sense now, doesn't it? Now, we said that Jesus came to, to fulfill the law. What, what exactly does that mean? First of all, by what he did when he came to earth, he carried out the law. He also brought the law to a, a better, a more full expression of what it really meant. And it also meant that he brought the law to completion. He wasn't there to, to take away what was taught. He was there to finish what had been taught. <clears throat> when, when he said the that I'm not here to wipe out the, the law or the prophets, you figure he fulfilled the prophecy of what had been taught in the Old Testament, what had been written in the Old Testament. It predicted, the Old Testament predicted the birth, the life, and the ministry of Christ. And he's saying, I just came to fulfill what had been said already by the prophets. And through his work on the cross, basically what he did is he underlined the, the whole thing that the law was to tell what was to come, but now he was here to offer salvation. And that was what this whole little bit of Scripture that we're talking about was to mean. Now, if we're not careful sometimes when we read, we read the Scripture and we just whiz by it and we go, well, I don't really know what that meant. I'll just go on. Let me urge you to do this in your study. There are a lot of different concordances um, that you can buy. There's a Matthew Henry um, is a widely accepted one. But 
even more than that, you can go on, if you go on the Internet, pray first and then go on the Internet, and <clears throat> you can find pretty much commentary on anything that you want to find. It's, it's just amazing. Yesterday, I, I kind of knew what this jot and tittle thing was, but I wanted to get more of a, a in-depth. Went online, typed in jot and tittle. It's just amazing the extra information that you can get from. And when you get that additional information, and a lot of this is from Matthew Henry commentary, <clears throat> but it's amazing how much more sense the Bible makes when you actually understand what it's talking about. And when we talk about Bible study, that's what it should be. Bible study, and this is not what our lesson's about today, but I think this is important. Bible study is important because we've talked about before, it's, it's one thing to hear the Word. It's another thing to know the Word. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why we do this. Okay, going on. Verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. That's pretty strong words. Now, here's, here's the problem. Going back to that verse 19. The religious leaders of that time had kind of gotten into a habit of misinterpreting and misapplying scriptures. And they had certain little pet scriptures that they liked, and they had others that they just didn't like. So what they did is they took these ones that they really liked and they hammered away at those and the rest of them, they just kind of threw them to the side. I wrote that down in the little corner, pet scriptures. Boy, there's people today that build an entire religion on a couple little scriptures and take the rest of it and go, well, but, you know, if you bring that up, well, there's another explanation for that. But we can't do that. We have to take what this Bible says as a whole. We can't pick out, and, and I don't mean this derogatorily, but we can't pick out Acts 2.38 and say that's the only scripture in the Bible that matters. Because there's a whole lot more in there that matters too. I do the same thing. I think talking to the television is very healthy. That's right. You're not alone. So what these people did, if, if they didn't feel like it was important to them, they set it aside. If they liked it and it went along with how they lived, then they, they taught it. So what Jesus was saying, he says, if anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches it to others or teaches others to do the same, will be called the least in the kingdom. In other words, it's bad enough that you do it.
But if you go around telling other people that it's okay to do it, you're going to end up being the least in the kingdom. Now, a typical Jewish person of that day <clears throat> would have thought that the Pharisees and the scribes were sufficiently good to merit God's grace. Because you know how they knew that? Because they went around telling everybody they were. If you didn't think they were holy, just ask them. And they would reiterate the fact of how holy they were. And we don't have people like that today either. <clears throat> Lord, help us. Jesus shattered this myth when he declared that a person's righteousness had to go a whole lot further than the righteousness of the religious leaders of that day. Verse 20. Let's take a look at that. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you won't even get into heaven. That's right. I mean, here's these people looking to the Pharisees as being the holy of holy people because they walked around saying, I'm holy, I'm holy, I'm holy. So everybody looks to them and Jesus says, let me tell you what, if you're not any more holy than those people, you're not even going to make it into heaven. Ooh. If I was looking up to them and they're not even good enough to make it into heaven, maybe I need to take another look at me. Remember, we're talking about reflections here. Now, question. Why did Jesus' statement about the righteous probably surprise these people he was talking to? Exactly. It changed everything they had ever done. Here they went around looking at these Pharisees and, and religious people of that day as being so godly. And all of a sudden Jesus just took that whole thing and wiped it out. And they're like, well then, what are we supposed to look at? Remember we talked last week about the Beatitudes, how it was kind of a, a basic guideline, how a spirit-filled person should live or how a Christian should live? Jesus was taking all those things that they thought, not the law and the prophets, but the man-made things that they thought, and he was taking those things away and saying, you need to look to something else other than people. When we start looking to people as to... Let me be careful when I say this. We need to be careful that if we're looking to people that they are following the Word of God. Not just looking to people because of their position. And there's an awful lot of people <clears throat> on TV, radio, and they're not all bad. I'm not saying that at all. There's some excellent teachers and, and pastors on, on TV and on the radio. But we need to be careful that we don't take what they say as being absolute truth just because they're on TV or radio. By the same token, you have to be careful when you go on the Internet and you get somebody's commentary on the Bible to research it and see if that's true too. That's an opinion, exactly. And most commentary is. Now, when you get to things like this, as far as historical facts, history is history. That's not an opinion. So you can go with that. And there's nothing wrong with getting an opinion. But I believe when we read a lot of opinions, we need to make sure that we pray so that God will lead us 
into what we actually accept as truth. <clears throat> okay, going on. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard it. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. I'm going to stop right there. This eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing has been so misinterpreted over the years. What it really was supposed to be was to limit the occurrence of vengeance. It was set up to help a court give correction that was neither too strict nor too lenient. It was to make the the punishment fit the crime. For example, it kept them from sentencing someone to death for spitting on the sidewalk. The punishment had to fit the crime. In other words, the most that you could punish somebody if they put out somebody's eye was an eye. And if they busted somebody's tooth out was to bust their tooth out. That didn't mean that you automatically had the right if somebody poked you in the eye to poke them in the eye. And that's how it's kind of been misconstrued over a lot of time. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Buddy, you punch me, I'm going to punch you right back. That's what the Bible says. It's not what it says. It says you have heard an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. Jesus was saying, you've heard that, but now I'm going to clarify what it really means. See how you can take a portion of Scripture and quote it, and it just doesn't, it sounds just like you've always heard it. It's out of context. You you have to realize that there was some following words and, and what those following words meant, but... You have heard eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but going on, and that's what Jesus was trying to get across. The premise of the law was to offer protection to the guilty party from excessive retaliation on behalf of the victim. It kept the victim from going against that person for way more than they deserved. Imagine that. Tort reform in the Bible. Today, we have, it's gotten so far out of control. You can spill a a cup of hot coffee from McDonald's in your lap, and you can turn around and sue them for $5 million and win because you were so dumb that you spilled coffee on your lap. Well, did you not think the coffee's going to be hot? And see, that's what Jesus was saying. You've heard eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This is what it really means. It's so you don't go get some ridiculous settlement. If you killed somebody's cow, they can't come take a 100 cows back. They can take one. It was to make the punishment fit the crime. We have lost the whole concept of that in our legal system today. Totally lost it. Here's a person that, you know, is injured, and maybe they can still work and and still do whatever they, they did, but because of whatever reason and it's a big company that they're suing, they can sue some company for $100 million. Or somebody that smoked all their life, develops lung cancer, even though it says on the side of the package it'll kill you, and then they can sue the cigarette manufacturer because they developed lung cancer. See, that's what Jesus was talking about. That's not the way it's supposed to be. 
we won't get into that. Jesus was trying to get people to characterize themselves as being fair. Now also, the law that was set up was set up for judges to apply. But what had happened, some of the religious leaders of that day had taken upon themselves to apply the law themselves. Even though they weren't a judge, but because they were so spiritual, that they could just take it upon themselves to pronounce judgment on somebody. Jesus was not saying that, that the law and the courts cannot pronounce judgment on somebody. What he was trying to say is, I want you to do away with the spirit of vengeance and revenge. There's no place for it. Going after somebody strictly for revenge is wrong. So let's put this in context. <clears throat> you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Go to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Wow. Now, I want to clarify something here. <clears throat> In this passage of Scripture, if we're not careful, it looks like Jesus is making some pretty harsh, nearly impossible demands on people. It's helpful to remember that Jesus was talking to the people. This part of the sermon, <clears throat> he was addressing morality. And in doing so, he was, he was using, trying to use this stark contrast of one thing and another. One thing and another. It's also thought that he was speaking in what's called hyperbole. Or hyperbole, as they say in Indiana. <clears throat> hyperbole. Hyperbole is synonymous with exaggeration to make a point. Now you say, well, I would never do that. Right there is the perfect example. I would never do that. Has anybody ever said, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse? Would you really? When he told that story, I almost died laughing. Did you really? Almost die laughing. I've heard that a million times. This book weighs a ton. That's hyperbole. You're saying something in a way to, to overly state a truth. It's not that it's not true, but you're trying to make sure that people understand that you're saying something that you want them to know is big and you have one thing and then another. And that's what Jesus was saying in this. And I want us to look at it like that. In fact, the modern term, term we use today, 
The term hype, today we use it in a term that actually is extravagant publicity. When you hype something, you go way, way overboard to bring attention to it. And that's where we get this word today. Okay, so keeping that in mind, and I'm not saying that Jesus didn't literally mean that these were true, but he was using these examples as a a blown-up example of moral things that we should do as we live our life. First, verse 39, he said, if you are slapped in the cheek, just turn the other cheek. Now, probably referred to as a backhand slap, which was a really rude thing of the day, to slap somebody with the back of your hand. Exactly. And Jesus was saying, if that happens, you should be willing to turn the other cheek. I don't think he meant that if somebody smacks you in the mouth, you just go up and say, hey, hit me over here. It was a a reference to something that if you're going to live like you're supposed to live, that if that person does something to you, you don't retaliate. That's what he was saying. It doesn't mean that we have to run up and say, oh, Jesus said to go ahead and slap the other cheek too. No, that's not what he was saying. He's saying live your life in a way that if someone does something against you, that if they want to go ahead and take another shot at you, let them take another shot, and you still don't have to retaliate. Sister Becky. It's a great point. Great point. Second example. Here's a defendant being sued for his shirt. Now, obviously, here's, here's Jesus is also bringing this out because if somebody is suing somebody for a shirt, they're probably kind of poor. So Jesus is saying, if somebody shoot, sues you for your shirt, go ahead and give them your jacket too. Exactly. It's a reflection on the person that's suing you, too. Exactly. It's a moral character, and it's a moral guideline that Jesus was teaching his followers, this is the way you should live your life. If somebody's going to take something from you, be willing to just give them whatever else, too, because it's a reflection on them. And also, it's a reflection on how you are in your heart. It's a reflection on both sides of the situation. Now, does that mean if somebody takes you to court and sues you for $1,000 that you've got to go sell your house and give them everything? No, I don't think that's what he meant. I think Jesus was speaking in a manner to get people to see the overall morality of what he was talking about. Again, this whole hyperbole thing. Verse 41 If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. In that day, the Romans were still in charge, and a Roman soldier could come up to you. You could be out mowing the yard. You're mowing the yard. And he comes by and he goes, oh, hey, you, come here a minute. See all this equipment I've got? Yeah. Stop mowing the yard and take all this equipment. And you are required by law to carry his equipment 
for a mile. No questions asked. It was the law. You had to stop anything you were doing, pick up all his stuff, and just carry it for a mile. And I'm sure that in that day, there were people that had a marker in the ground. Okay, I start right here, but you see that red stick down there? When we get there, it's all yours, buddy. Here we go. And they'd go the mile, and they wouldn't go one step past that red stick, and they go, boom, there's your stuff. I'm done. I just fulfilled the law with that attitude. And Jesus was saying, that's not the attitude. Don't just do what you have to do. If somebody comes up to you and says, take my stuff a mile, when you get to that marker that you put out there exactly a mile from your house, go ahead and take it another mile. Hence, we get that term going the extra mile. The fourth example involved a loan. <clears throat> In that day, it was okay to lend money to a fellow Israelite, and no interest could be charged. And Jesus said, if you do that, that you should be willing to give with no thought of return. I will tell you on a, a note of personal experience, anytime you personally loan somebody money, that's probably the best way to give it. Because chances are you won't get it back. And I think if, if I had read that scripture and understood it many years ago, I'd probably have a lot more money, but... Now, what do all these commands have in common? They all require the believer to go beyond the minimum requirement. Jesus spoke these things the way he did so that somebody wouldn't say, well, this is what the Bible says, and I'm living it right to the right to the T, and that's it, not a bit more. He was trying to teach moral character, which is a very difficult thing to teach because we're so used to rules and regulations, and morality isn't strictly rules and regulations. It has some variables in it, like that going the one mile, go ahead and go two. You know what? If you're feeling good when you get to two, go three. If somebody really wants to take advantage of you and it's not hurting you, show them a good spirit. I'll give you an example. And this just happened yesterday. And I was absolutely astounded. Back several months ago, I <clears throat> had sold a car to a guy and was financing it. And he was going through some hard times at the time, and so I let him... I did it in a way that I knew was not the right way, but I let him do it with no money down and all that because of this, that, and the other. Well, over a period of several months, I just didn't get paid. So I called him, and I'd gotten a couple bad checks in addition to that from him, and I called him and, and said, look, this is what we're going to have to do. One morning I get to work, and the car's sitting at the building with the key in it. He just left it, just dropped it off. 
Okay, good. I got my car back. Well, I still had a bad check, so I called him and told him I wanted the money for the bad check. And he eventually came in and made the check right. But as he left, he said a couple little things and made a couple little hand gestures and went his way. Haven't seen him in six months probably. Yesterday I'm standing in my office and a guy walks in and he goes, do you remember me? No, not really. He said, I bought a car from you several months ago and I ended up bringing it back and I was going through a lot of stuff in my life. And he said, I want to, I want to apologize to you for how I handled that. He said, it's no excuse that all that was going on, but it was a lot of stuff. And he said, I've been talking to my pastor and I need to make some things right. And I wanted to come back and tell you that I was just wrong in the way I went about that. Wow. I was just so taken back. And I had been studying my lesson yesterday and I thought, now that is a reflection of Christ. Here's a person that made a trip, a long, fairly long trip, all the way to my office to walk in and ask forgiveness. That's a hard thing to do. But that's what Jesus was talking about, going that extra mile. He could have just said, Lord, forgive me, I was wrong, and God would forgive him. But he went that extra mile to go back to the person that he hurt and say, I am really sorry that that happened. That's the kind of moral character that I believe Jesus was talking about to the people. Right, and I think that's probably what his pastor told him. And I think that's why he went back and, and did that. So there's, you know, life sometimes gives us the greatest examples of what we're looking at. And it seems in the last couple of weeks, as I study my lesson during the week, sometimes during that week, God just brings these examples into our life. And so many times if we're not careful, we miss what God is trying to show us. We miss the whole message that God is trying to show us at that time. Going on, Matthew five forty three through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, wait a minute. Let's stop right there. Again, this is one of those things. Jesus is not saying this is Scripture. He's saying, you have heard it said. Can you find that in the Bible where the Bible says, love your, your neighbor and hate your enemy? Now, somebody could take that scripture and say, well, Jesus said to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Nope. It's not what it says. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Going on. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, 
What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. Leviticus 19 and 18. I want to read that real quick. This is from the law. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, that's what the law said. Now, what had happened, the religious leaders of that day had so narrowly defined who your neighbor was. Because you get into that, well, it says love my neighbor. Who exactly is my neighbor? Well, maybe it's just the person that lives at least no more than two houses down from you. Everybody else, they're on their own. And if you narrowly define who your neighbor is, you can end up hating a lot of people. And Jesus was aware of that. In fact, some of the people of that day, the religious leaders, had added that second half on there. Love your neighbor, the guy that lives on the right and on the left of you. Your right and your left. The guy that lives on the right and the left of you, but hate your enemies. And they had started teaching that as being the law. Still happens today. People take a scripture and they add a little bit to it and it changes the whole meaning of the scripture. Jesus was saying that's not what it's supposed to say. He's saying what I want you to do is I want you to love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. That is difficult. He said, here's, here's the example I want to give you. Let's go to the next verse. God allows the sun to shine on the good and the bad, and it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. Basically saying God loves everyone. He lets the rain and the sunshine fall on those that are good and those who are bad. You need to do the same. Don't just pick out those that are easy to love. And say, well, I love those. How hard is it to love somebody that loves you? But it's a totally different morality issue to love somebody that hates you. He said that if you only love people that love you, you're no better than a tax collector. Now, why was that such a stinging insult? Because people hated tax collectors. They were bad people. If your taxes were, you know, a hundred bucks, they'd come up and tell you it was 150, and they'd take 50 and put it in their pocket, and then they'd turn in a hundred. And they had the law to back them up. They'd bring in soldiers and take your stuff. So people hated the tax collectors. I mean, not just disliked them, they hated them. And what Jesus is saying, now listen how strong this point is. If you only love people that love you, you're no better than a tax collector. That was just an absolute, pardon the expression, slap in the face. Then he talked about greeting people. It was a common thing of that day when you greeted somebody that you would say shalom, and that was blessings on them. And he's saying, big deal. 
So you greet somebody, your brother, and you say shalom. The pagans do that. Don't start thinking you're something because you do something like that. Because here's what happened. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and those religious leaders, they would follow those bits of the law, and then they would set themselves up as being holy. And he was saying, don't just pick those things that are easy. Do the hard thing. Love someone that hates you. Say shalom to someone that you don't necessarily like. Pronounce that blessing on someone that you really don't have a lot of favor with. If someone persecutes you, then you need to bless them. Then there's that last scripture. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that's where I just draw the line because I'll never be perfect. What exactly did Jesus mean? We have to realize that this statement, he was summing all the different things he had said, the moral issues, he was summing it all up with this statement. We also have to realize that the word translated perfect also had other meanings than what we initially think. It also meant complete. Having attained its end or purpose. So he wasn't saying that we had to be without fault so much as saying to be complete in all of these things I have told you. Take all of these things and complete them in your life and then you can say that you're a Christian. Jesus was focusing at this point, I believe, on spiritual maturity. It wasn't an instant thing that was going to happen. But when he was speaking about being perfect, was say, be complete, therefore, as your heavenly Father is. It was a, a, a thing that we strive towards. See, when we get saved, I wouldn't say that we are complete. We're forgiven, and if the Spirit of God is in us, we're saved. But the walk that we take from there is a walk of completion. When we first get saved, we're not as strong spiritually, hopefully, as we are five years down the road. And what Jesus is saying, these are the guidelines that I want you to follow. And as you grow in your walk, these are the things that need to start being implemented in your life. It it would be difficult to take somebody that was just a meaner than snake person and get saved and expect that they live their entire life by every one of these things that Jesus talked about. Not saying it couldn't be done but probably not right away. Not saying it can't be done. I'm not saying that at all. But I think what Jesus was saying when he's talking about this completion thing, that this is the direction that we need to strive towards. I don't think that he was saying that as soon as you're saved, that you're perfect and you just will stay perfect. Because all of us would have done been missed out. Because that would be saying that nobody has made a mistake since God saved them. I don't think that's the case. He's saying, I want you to be on this, this journey to completion. 
We sing a song that says, to be like Jesus, to be like Him. On earth I long to be like Him. All through life's journey, from earth to glory, I only ask to be like Him. And I believe that that's the way we need to look at it. When God forgives us, our sins are gone. When He fills us with His Spirit, we are empowered to live an overcoming life. And at that point, we start on a journey of completion. That as we go, we become more and more and more like our Heavenly Father. Hang on just a second. Let me say that again. When we are saved, when we repent, our sins are forgiven. Can we say amen to that? When He fills us with His Spirit, we are empowered. Amen. And then we begin a spiritual journey of completion to be more like our Heavenly Father. Okay. Now we're there. The extra mile. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and by doing that, look at the reflection that that person gives of who they serve. And that's what it really is all about. Now, let me go back to what I just said. I feel like some of those amens were a bit forced. But think about what I said. We talk about spiritual growth, and we all accept the fact of spiritual growth. Well, if, if there's such a thing as spiritual growth, that means you're going from someplace to someplace. 
which means there is that potential for getting better at what you do. And I believe that that's the message that I really I don't believe it. I know that's the message I'm trying to get across this morning, that it is a journey. Now, I'm not trying to confuse this with some religions that believe that, that at some point we become like God and we become little gods and he just keeps moving ahead of us. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that in our walk with God, we should strive to be a reflection of what God is. And we can only do that through the way we live our life. And it's not, it's not so much going to happen as soon as you are saved a lot of times. Sometimes it takes a little while to get some of those things out of our, our actions. If a person is used to, to living their life a certain way, and I'm not saying that it's okay to sin. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't misconstrue this. I'm saying that those moral attitudes, that going the extra mile, is not natural. It's something that we have to work on. Maybe when you're first saved, that going the extra mile is very, very difficult. But as you grow spiritually, it becomes something that you just do. And that's what I talk about spiritual maturity and growing and going on that journey to be more a better reflection of Christ. Exactly, to be Christians or Christ-like. How can we tell if we're growing towards perfection in our lives? I believe one way is that the things that used to be hard become a lot easier. That going the extra mile is not a big deal. Greeting somebody that is not necessarily our friend becomes easier. Loving someone other than just our neighbor becomes easier. And that, I believe, is how we can mark our spiritual growth progress. You know, the, the growth charts that you have when the kids are growing up, and you put a mark, put the ruler at the top of their head, and put a mark on the wall, and then they come back and you mark it here, and you can see their progress. Well, spiritually, we can't stand against the wall spiritually and put a ruler on our head and put a mark. So how do we know if we've grown? It's the attitude that goes along with the actions. Sure. Exactly. Another way is through our spiritual traits or fruits. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And I'm closing up here, I promise. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I believe that when we start seeing the fruits of the Spirit in our life. That's how we know that we're headed in the right direction. And they're listed right there. If there was ever something that, that mark on the wall to show growth, 
it would be going through that list of things and saying, how many of these things are being shown in my life? I hear that a lot too. That's right. See, there's, there's some of these fruit that I can see in my life. There's some that I don't see very well, which means I still have some growing to do. Often our sins, the things we do, we make a mistake. Sometimes they stunt our spiritual growth a little bit. We let things happen. We say things that, that we shouldn't say. We lose our temper when we shouldn't lose our temper. And all of those things are kind of like taking that mirror that is so clean and, and reflective and putting big greasy thumbprints on it. It still reflects. It just doesn't reflect quite as well. And when our life gets too full of those things, it gets to where it doesn't reflect at all. And that's what we need to look at. If we're reflecting God's image, we have to make sure that that mirror doesn't get so smudged with the things of the world that the reflection is lost. Because the whole point is for us to keep that polished so that the world sees the reflection of God as it was intended. God bless you. Thank you. Let's stand together. I don't think there is any of us that have arrived. The reason I say that, we're still breathing. And as long as we're still breathing, there's going to be room for growth in Christ. So let's, let's let it happen. Amen. Let's take, let's take five minutes. Can we do five minutes and come back? All right. God bless you.